take that Bible and look over to 1 John chapter 5. We'll have the message this week, and then we'll finish 1 John next week, and then it will be Mother's Day on May 12th, and then I'll do something on the 19th. And then we've got Shannon Hurley, our missionary here, with his family on the 26th. So this is a great month ahead of us. But we really come to a very fascinating, fascinating passage this morning. And maybe one that you've read before and you thought, what does that mean? How do I put this into practice? What is the meaning of that text? And so for that reason, it's a very, very interesting text. Uh, would you just take that Bible and let me read for us 1 John five, thirteen through 17. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. And now these two verses. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. Now that phrase there in verse 16, to those who commit sins that do not lead to death, and then followed up by there is a sin that leads to death. Certainly you've come across that in your reading. And again, one of the beauties of the exposition of the scripture is we can't skip over things. In fact, I would say that I'm sure that many pastors have never preached on that Scripture simply because probably most people aren't committed to do the exposition of the Scripture. But when we get to that place, then we've got to find out what does that phrase mean? What is the Apostle John talking about? Now, I've titled this The Certainties of Faith, Part 2, and then we'll finish the book of 1 John next week with The Certainties of Faith, Part 3. But as I mentioned last week, we really live in an uncertain world. I mean, we spend money to secure our future in light of the days ahead. We have car insurance, and I met with an adjuster this week. Remember that accident that Alyssa was in? Um, where there was like a 40, not Alyssa's fault, but a 40-car pileup, they finally got over to seeing our vehicle. And uh, we have insurance for that. And we would hope that they had insurance that can fix that. But we live in an uncertain world, so we buy car insurance. We buy health insurance. We buy homeowners insurance. Some of you Not all of you would have retirement plans. And obviously, a number of us are seeking to provide a cushion against the loss. And beyond the uncertainty of that, there are questions. Maybe if you're single, you're asking the question, will I marry? Maybe some of you are asking the question, will I find a job? Maybe some of you, as you look to the future, you're asking the question, will I have a job? Maybe some of you, as you look to the future, are asking the question, will Social Security collapse altogether? Some of you are wondering if you'll move into a nursing home. Some of you are wondering if down the road you'll give up your house. 
Some of you who are with child will wonder if your child will be born healthy. Still, some of you are asking the question, when will I die and how do I prepare for that? Yet one of the great truths of Christianity and our faith is that it is certain. Now, what John does here is he gives us a a number of certainties or a series of certainties that are highlighted by the use of the word no. Remember, we said last week that over 39 times in this epistle, John uses the word no. And he uses the word we know seven times in this chapter alone. He wants us to be certain in an uncertain world. In fact, look at your Bible. You can see him there in verse 13, just to touch on him. He says on the backside of verse 13 that you may know you have eternal life. Verse 14 tells us to pray. Look at verse 15. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Glance down to verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God and so forth. Verse 19. We know that we are from God. Verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. Seven different times just in this little paragraph, John says, we know. And so he wrote this epistle that you would be certain of the truth, the truth of God, the truth of Christ, and the truth of salvation. Now, to organize our thoughts last week, this week, and the week to come, he provides five certainties that result from our faith in Christ that would be to build us up in the faith. That's the flow. Five certainties from our faith in Christ that build us up in the faith. And we looked last week at the first certainty is the certainty of our assurance of eternal life. Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe, and the belief was uh, explicit, in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. John wrote this epistle that you would know that. I would hope that as you sit there this morning, if you're in Christ, you should have no worries. You should have no doubts. You should have assurance. John wrote this book that you would have that certainty of eternal life. And again, I don't want to just skip over that. We've talked about that over the last year. He wants you to know that. He doesn't want you to be uncertain. Well, I, I kind of hope it works out. Well, I, I think so. I, I, I th- No, he wants you to know. He wants you to have a shit without a shadow of doubt that you're in Christ's kingdom, that you would know that you have eternal life. That makes Christianity very unique. Now, as a result of the assurance of eternal life, here, secondly, we can have confidence and boldness before God in prayer. And so the second certainty is our approach to God in prayer, and it's built off the first one. If you know that you have eternal life, the second certainty from verse 14 through 17 is our approach to God in prayer. And what John did in this little point is provide four keys, okay, 
to approach God in prayer. Four key points. And we begin that. We said, number one, there was confidence in prayer. Look at verse 14. John says, this is the confidence that we have toward him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Here's the confidence. You can go boldly to God. You can go boldly before him. You can pray in confidence. There's a sense obvious that God is awesome, that he's holy, that there, there's a fear that draws us into him. But the writers of Scripture and John and even our Lord Jesus Christ said, if you're a believer, because you have that certainty of a relationship with God, you have the certainty of approaching God in confidence as you pray. But secondly there, and that second key feature in our approach to God, and remember, was the condition of prayer. There it is, and we said it in verse 14. You can go confidently, but it says in 14 there's a condition that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, he mentions that word anything to give the limitless realities of what we bring to God in prayer, but our prayer is conditioned by praying, as we mentioned last week, according to God's will. But as you meet that condition, thirdly then, and we left off here, is the confirmation in prayer. And it says there in verse 14, if we ask anything according to his will, he what? He hears us. So what an encouragement to pray. Maybe you came in with a full heart. Maybe this has been a long week. Maybe there's been much on your heart. Maybe there's been much on your mind. Well, listen, here's a certainty in an uncertain world. You can not only have assurance of salvation, but secondly, you can have certainty in your approach to God that he will hear you. Now, look what he says there in 15. If we know that he hears us in whatever we ask of him, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Again, that is conditioned by God's will. So very clearly, John says, says, he hears all your prayers except one. Except one. So what is that? Well, watch this. Look down at 16. It says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, then he shall ask. And God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. Period, right? Then he says, though, there is sin that leads to death, and I do not say that one should pray about that. Now, I bring you here to the fourth little sub-point, the clarification in prayer. And this will always be our desire at Grace Church of the Valley. We're going to explain the text, right? And so here as we get to the clarification in prayer, as you read 16, what does that mean? And who actually has committed the sin that leads to death? I mean, is this the unpardonable sin? And do some of you worry if you've committed that? What is John talking about here? Now, I remind you as we come to that fourth point, clarification in prayer, he's still in his theme on prayer, is he not? And he basically says, look at the text again, if you see your brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask. You're praying if he's not committed that sin. At the end of verse 16, there is a sin that leads to death, and I do not say that one should pray. 
So please understand that he's still in this section on, on prayer, but what in the world is John talking about here? Okay? Let's pick it apart, okay? Let's pick it apart so we can grab some clarity. And of course, not only do we want clarity, we want application. So this will be very much pointed to you towards the end. But let's pick up the text. Look what it says in 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death. Stop there just for a second. You'll notice that the first statement there, the first word in the ESV is if. And we call that a conditional if, if you do. But whenever the writers of the New Testament use that third class conditional clause, it doesn't mean like it's hypothetical. It actually assumes the reality of this situation that will occur. So he's talking to you that when you see a brother or sister in sin, not leading to death, you, you have a responsibility. You are encouraged to Pray for them. Now, in other passages, Matthew 18, if you see your, sin, your brother in sin, you're to go to them. Okay? This is just a different nuance, it, nuance of it. Look down again at verse 16, though. It says there, if anyone sees his brother. Now, I, I don't want to get too picky, but John is talking, understand, uh, about a specific occasion of sin. He's not talking about your intuition. He's not talking about your hunch, okay? He's not talking about your feeling, maybe because you ate a pizza the other night and it's just upsetting you. He's talking about you're moving in your life and you see your brother committing a sin. In other words, it's observable. It's an identifiable sin. It's an actual sin committed by one in the body of Christ at GCV or the greater body that you're part of. Now look what it says, just as we build this backlog. Verse 16, if anyone sees his brother, and then it uses this phrase, committing a sin. Now you'll note there just a couple things. It's a brother, at least John says it's a brother. You're thinking this is a believer, because that might be a question. Who's the one committing the sin, you know, unto death? Is it a believer? Is it an unbeliever? At least here in 16, if you see your brother, He's talking about someone in the body of Christ. It's talking about someone who has fallen into sin. Now, literally, what it says, look down again in verse 16. It says, committing a sin. Literally, in the language, sinning a sin. Okay? Now, we know from John, we still sin, do we not? If you go back, I'll just touch on it. Look back at John chapter 1.8. Obviously, when we get redeemed, we're not fully perfect. In fact, John said, you remember that nearly a year ago, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we, what? Deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We sin. We still sin, if you will. In fact, look at verse 9, chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we still sin as believers. We have to confess our sin. Look at 1 John 2, 1, my little children. John says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But he does say, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, 
the righteous. So we do sin, but on the other hand, we do not sin as an ongoing pattern according to 1 John 3, 9. We don't practice sin. So I think we understand there's not a pattern of sin in our life, but we do sin. So what John is saying here is this. When you observe someone in sin, and at least according to this passage, that sin does not lead to death, okay? And when you observe that, when you see that, you are to pray for them. In other words, you, you. See, I always like to say you. Because there's too much, uh, I don't know, I guess I just sometimes always feel as the pastor, too much reliance on the pastor or the elders. You are the priesthood of the believers. I've been focusing on that for a year in one way or another. But as you're out with our body, or you have a roommate, or you have a family member, or someone in our church, and you observe that sin, you are to pray. You are to beseech God. You're to ask God. So let me just put it this way. You are, I'm preaching to myself, your brother's keeper. To not pray when you observe something is a failure to love your brother and sister. And as you pray... Look what will happen. Look at verse 16. God will give them what? Life. And you say, what kind of life is that? Well, I just take it that we already have eternal life. 5, 11, and 12. We just spent our time on that. This is the testimony, 5, 11, that God gave us eternal life. And the life is in his son. So now when he says you see a brother, he identifies it as a Christian committing a sin or sinning a sin, you pray for them and God will give them life. And life here is not the regenerating work of salvation. Rather, it is the restoration of a fallen believer in sin. In other words, as you pray, you can pray them to victory in the Christian life. Okay? Hebert, in his commentary, said, God delights to perform his saving work on behalf of his sinning people in connection with the spirit-prompting intercession of the saints. In other words, God's going to use us. He's going to use you. He's going to use me as we pray. And so look what he says. If you ask and pray for God to give him life, look down in 16. It says, God will give him life. And then you'll note that he says, to those who commit sins that do not lead to death, okay? But he goes on to say, there is, into 16, a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Now, what is that? What is the sin that leads to death? Now, I'm sure when John picked up his pen and began to write under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, to those whom he wrote, they knew what it was. I really think that. I think when they first read this, they thought, oh, yeah, I know what John's talking about. Because, John, we we know that. But here, we're some years later, and we're asking the question, what does it mean? And when he writes there in verse 16 about the sin that leads to death, is that physical death? Or is that spiritual death? And for that matter, what does it mean today? 
Now, I would tell you this. John does not identify the sin that he's expressively speaking about, does he? He doesn't just write it down in the Scripture. He doesn't say it's this sin. But I can tell you what that young theologian said to me today at the breakfast table. It's my twin. She's our twins. They said, Dad, that's Hitler. Oh, really? And so we had a discussion about, I mean, who is that? What is the sin that leads to death? Is it reserved for a certain type of people? Is it reserved for a certain type of sin? Or can you commit that sin that leads to death? What does it mean? And he doesn't expressly say. So let me just walk you through four main views of the sin that leads to death. There's a, there's a number of them that are, have been purported. And if you want to read as much as I've read this week, um, you'd be surprised, okay? And, and you say, well, why is there some different views? Well, there's different views because John didn't tell us what it was. So we have to get back in, crawl into the text, crawl into the whole of Scripture, and say, what might he be talking about from the Word of God? Number one, okay, there, that this sin that leads to death is a specific deadly sin perishable unto death. Some people believe that that's what it is. You say, well, Scott, what do you mean by that? Well, do you remember in in the Old Testament, there were some sins that were actually listed as capital offenses. You committed one of these sins, it's punishable by death. Numbers 15, Leviticus 20. Uh, Watch this. All sins were punishable, but there were some sins that were so heinous and so evil that it brought death. In fact, when you read through the Old Testament, there was a distinction often that was drawn up between sins of ignorance, I think we get that, committed unknowingly, and then there were those sins in the Old Testament that were committed with evil intent. In other words, there were higher impact sins that were beyond pardon, and then there were minor offenses that could be forgiven. And so as that came down in church history, then the church fathers and the scholars begin to divide sins between grosser sins and more heinous sins, such as murder, such as adultery, and even blasphemy, if you will, as an unforgivable sin, while lighter offenses could be forgiven. I mean, we understand this today, do we not? We have distinguished between first-degree murder, which is pre-meditated, and we distinguish between second-degree murder, which is what? Unpremeditated. Unpremeditated. Now, I mean, there is something, when we look back on the Boston bomber, right? And there's just something in you, something in me, and... Maybe this isn't fair to say. I mean, a bomb is heinous, right? But when you know with evil intent, one is just heinous altogether. But you know when they put shrapnel in there and BBs in there and metal pieces in there and set them low so that it would blow people's arms and legs off, there's something in you where that doesn't just pass on as a mistake, It doesn't just pass on as somebody deluded. There's something in the intent of that that you think that is the worst of all crimes. So some people believe 
that the sin that leads to death is a specific deadly sin that's punishable by death. I don't think that's a bad view, but I don't think that fits John's context here. I mean, is that really what John's getting at? In this context of prayer, is he really trying to distinguish between higher impact sins and lesser forgivable sins? More heinous, grosser sins, I just, I can't think that that's John's view within this context. Very well, there's a second view. Some people believe that this sin that leads to death is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And when you commit that sin, there's no, don't even pray for someone. I mean, if one of you committed that sin, and by the way, I have met many people who think they've committed that sin. That they say, Pastor, there's just this sin. There's this time. There's this incident. When I was a new believer, Pastor, even before I was a believer, I committed this sin. You say, what does it go back to? Let me show you. Look back in Matthew's Gospel, okay? We have to unpack part of this. Matthew chapter 12, and certainly if you've been in the Lord for some time, you've seen this verse, but I have to remember that some of you are newer in the Lord, and so we have to scan these and read these, do we not? Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees in Mark, excuse me, Matthew chapter 12, verse 31. Therefore, 1231, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. Remember this one? But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Bam. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. And so we call that the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. You say, what is that? I don't have time to unpack all of it. But it was the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, an open rebellion against the person of Christ, okay? It was to claim that Jesus' works in his earthly ministry were not done in the power of the Holy Spirit. They were done by the power of who? Beelzebub. In fact, if you want, just go over to Mark just for a minute because you didn't say it in Matthew. Mark chapter 3. Look over there just for a second so that you can see it with your eyes. If you've committed this sin, then, you, then some people believe that's what he's talking about. In Mark chapter 3, verse 28, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter, verse 29, whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin, okay? Now, this sin is, is, again, as I mentioned, a declaration on the work of Christ in the past age. And I don't believe that that sin can be committed today, okay? In other words, Christ is no longer physically present in itinerant ministry. So to behold him and then claim his works to Satan could only be done in that age in his physical ministry. 
But yet I've known believers who have suffered thinking, suffered much in their thinking, that they have committed this sin and are unforgivable. They've committed the unpardonable sin. And I say it's impossible to do it. So I just want to set you at ease. I don't believe anybody can commit that sin because I don't think Christ is physically, he isn't, present. So how do you accredit his work to the power of Satan? I suppose some people say it by way of extension, but I don't believe that, ministry, that sin can be committed. Any, in addition to that, anyone who is so sensitive to such a degree like that is a sure sign that they are not guilty of such a sin, okay? Because if you're worried about it, then that's clearly not a hardened heart. But some people believe that's what it's talking about. I don't. I don't think there's any context here to speak of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in John's context. Thirdly, then, what is this thing, the sin, as you look back to 1 John? Some people believe that it's the apostasy and the denial of Christ. In other words, the sin that leads to death is just a denial in our age of the person and the work of Christ. Now, what gives this view credence is the context. The context would apply it to some of the Gnostics who were part of the fellowship, who were in the fellowship, and then they left the fellowship. Remember back at that famous verse, 1 John 2.19, go back. Maybe this is the sin in 2.19. They went out from us, 2.19. In other words, but they were not of us. So they were in there, but they went out from us. They're not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not, what, of us. And then he says in 20, but you have the, the anointing from the Holy One. So there's some people believe that this is a denial of the person of Christ. And this person has apostatized and they could never be restored again. So John might be saying here, listen. When you make that sin, when you apostatize, when you deny Christ, when you deny his deity, when you deny that he's come in the flesh, he would say to you, don't even pray. If somebody gets that far, that's what the view would say. You can pray for a sinning brother when you see them, but if somebody gets to apostasy and a denial of Christ, John might say at verse 16, I do not say that one should pray for that. In other words, the person may be too far gone. But there's a fourth view. I'm moving fairly quick here. Some believe that this final view, and I'll try to reason what I think it is at the end, a state of persistent sin judged by death. This, of course, would be talking about a believer. Apostasy and a denial of Christ might be an unbeliever. They were part of it, but then they left it all together. But you say, but pastor, it said in verse 16, if you see a brother sinning. So you have to say, ah, there's an issue there on the third view, because isn't he talking to a believer who's sinning? The fourth view is the state of a persistent sin judged by death. He's talking to you in the body of Christ here. The view says that John is talking about a believer who is persisting, and certainly you know some of them. You know a lot of them. They're in your family. They're in our community. And you know them. They've confessed Christ but they're persisting in deliberate sin that it can lead to physical, what? Death, okay? You say, can this happen? And my answer would be, yes, it did happen. 
it happened in the scripture. You say, well, can you warrant that? Sure. Look over in Acts 5. You know this. Acts 5. Let me just show it with your eyes. You say, did this ever happen? Yeah. Take you to a couple places. Acts chapter 5, where you know the account with Ananias and Sapphira. In fact, as you turn to Acts chapter 5, it might be appropriate to bump back to chapter 4, verse 37, 36. Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only, understand, a part of it. Uh, stop there just for a second. Not wrong to bring a part of it, right? We all know that. Just don't say you're going to bring all of it. Then bring a part of it. He only brought a part of it. And verse 2, at the end, just like the previous passage, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, can you imagine this scene? Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie and to the Holy Spirit to keep back yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Now, here's clarity. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Listen, it's yours. You don't have to come say it. Was it not yours? Verse 4. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to who? God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and breathed his what? Last. Can you imagine that church service? Oh. Uh, No wonder, look what it says in verse 5 at the end, and great fear came upon all who heard it. I think so. Now, the reason I love that passage is it's a hard one, but I just feel like a lot of people just play church here in the Central Valley. Not, Not these guys. He called them right up front, you lied, bam, down he goes. The deacons come forward and they carry the guy out. Look at verse 6. The young men, I don't know if they're deacons, but they're young farmers, will say, rose. They wrapped him up. They carried him out and buried him. Well, that made great headlines for that local church, I bet. And after about an interval of about three hours, his wife came in. She might have been shopping in Fresno. I don't know. But she came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out immediately. She fell down in his feet and breathed her last. And there they come again. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her besides her husband. And no question, verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and all who heard. I I bet you they just said, man, I'm not going to that church. I mean, you may die, you know. But you understand, there's precedent here. The sin that leads to death is for people. Uh, I'm, I'm defining it a little bit. In a state of persistent sin, judged by death. In other words, it's a serious sin. It's a sin that breaches the holiness of the church, the holiness of the individual, a very serious sin. Look over in 1 Corinthians. You remember this one, right? Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and I don't mean to cause any fear, but 
we are at the Lord's Supper in a little bit here. You remember what happened at the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11? He said, when you come together and I'm in 1120, is it not the Lord's Supper that you eat for an eating? Each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets what? Drunk. I mean, this thing that should have become a place and point of reverence became a place of sin and debauchery. He says in 22, Paul says, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in or do you not... Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. I just love that moxie because most pastors are afraid to say anything. Not Paul. He says, no, I will not. For I received from the Lord. And he goes in, I also delivered to you, verse 23, that the Lord, that the, to you that the Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed, so forth, took bread and so forth. He gives the elements. He says in verse 27, scan down there, whoever therefore eats of the bread, drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. See, they were doing it slipshod, if you will. It just, they weren't being godly, holy, and an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Let that person examine himself then and eat the bread and drink the cup. Verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, and I don't think his own body, I think he's talking about the body of Christ, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And here's the verse. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have, what? Died. Died. I think, was it in the NASB that says some sleep? Listen, the Lord just took some of them home. So when we get to this fourth view, is there a warrant for that in Scripture? Yes. We see it in Ananias and Sapphira. We see it here in Corinthians. Some just died, okay? In other words, the Lord just took them home. And I think maybe what John could be saying is, you are free to pray, but you, you can pray without the certainty of the outcome of your prayer, okay? In other words, you could pray. It's not like he's commanding us not to. He does say, I say, do not pray. In other words, if the Lord's rendered that verdict, and the very fact that some have died showed that they were guilty of the sin that leads to death. You ask, well, Scott, again, what is the sin that John is addressing? And I'm going to say it again. It's not stated. It's not stated specifically, but it seems, does it not, to describe a sin that compromises the church involving a breach of conduct. You say, well, what view is it, Scott? Well, I would say to you, it's hard to be dogmatic over such a question, okay? I mean, if there's various views, maybe we're trying to scope the meaning and the nuance of this word, so you'd want to be careful to not be over dogmatic. But I believe that view number three and number four could both be on target. I don't think he's talking about sin in the first view, that, that there's some that are more serious than others. All sin is sin. In fact, would you glance down at verse 17? He says there, all wrongdoing is sin, okay? But there is a sin that does not lead to death. In other words, all sin is sin, he's going to say. So, but the second view, the blasphemy, I just don't think that sin can be committed. So, I do believe somewhere between three and four. So step back with me on view three. We're we're teaching here that maybe Paul is saying 
that the sin that leads to death is the sin of apostasy and the denial of Christ. And you might say to me, Scott, but John is addressing a believer here. Look back at verse 16 with me. He says there, if you see his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God and and God will give him life. I agree. He's talking about a brother. And you might ask the question then, if it's that view, how does a believer fall away? We've been spending a year by saying that a true believer can never, what? Fall away, okay? In fact, you say, well, how do you know that? Well, that's the teaching of 1 John. Our salvation is secure. You're assured, So then how is view three in there? In fact, look down at verse 18. We'll go next week. He says, we know, verse 18, that everyone who's born of God does not keep on what? Sinning. So how do you get to somebody in view three of apostasy? Are they in Christ and fall out of Christ? Are they a believer? Then they're not a believer. However, the reason why view three might make some sense, though, is look at the, the statement again in verse 16. The reference is only to the believer in the first half of the verse, but not the second. Did you see that? In other words, watch this. You can understand, he's talking, addressing a believer. He calls him a brother. If anyone sees a brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he will ask, and God will give him life to those who who commit sins that do not lead to death. But watch this in this last phrase. No mention of the word brother, is there not? There is a sin that leads to death. And I do not say that one should pray for that. In other words, uh, you'd say in that second description, okay, that person is not described to be a brother. You say, well, I can carry it over from the first half into the second half. You may. But I'm just saying it doesn't mention the word brother on the sin leading to death, okay? The second person remains identified. He is not described to be a brother. Could John, here's the question, be describing two different people in verse 16? I think so. I do. He could say if you see your brother in sin, you have a responsibility. You go to pray. But if you see a person, watch this who's apostatized from the faith, who has denied the faith, who has denied the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, basically, in some ways, you can pray, but listen, don't be assured that you'll see the outcome of that prayer. So put it together. So who are the ones who commit the sin that leads to death? Here it is. And I believe this carries an edge to it. It is those who have left the flock It is those who have turned away from Christ. It is those in this book and in our world who depart from the faith of Christ, who go out from the truth of the gospel. It is those who deny Christ. It is those who deny that Christ has come in the flesh. It is those who deny His deity. In other words, there's some people who brush up so close to the truth to never come to the truth, that having received the truth and to turn away from it, they've apostatized from it 
And it could be that John is describing people in this book, the Gnostic false teachers, or people in our day who grow up in the life of the church, who grow up quoting Awana verses and turn away from it altogether. He says, listen, they've turned away from the truth and they're never coming back. And John the Apostle could be saying, I I say, don't pray for them. You say, is there a warrant for this in Scripture? Yes. Look over in Hebrews, okay? Is that just back a book or two? Look back in Hebrews. Let me show you this. Because I think that there's some justification for view three. Do you remember this text in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4? Could this be John's point? I think so. 4, 6, 4. It is impossible. Remember the writer said this? In the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen, what? Away. It's impossible. 6, 6. To restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Wow. Could it be that? I think so. These are people that they weren't Christians, but they were around it enough and hadn't tasted it, but then they turned away. The writer says it's impossible to renew them. You see, but Scott, with God, all things are possible. What I'm telling you is that some people in the Scripture become so hard-hearted against the truth that it becomes impossible to renew them because they themselves are so far gone so as to never come back to the truth. So John could be saying, listen, once they get to that point at number three, he goes, I do not say pray because maybe in God's mind they've already been delivered over to the evil one. Thus, Hebrews backs that up. Would you look over at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26? Hebrews 10, verse 26. Have you seen this one before? Where it tells us to not neglect the meeting together, verse 25. As is the habit of what? Some. Some, you, you guys understand that. You just, you know people, you've grown up with them your whole life in Kingsburg. And somewhere, they're just not here. And they're just never here. Well, but, but Pastor, they, back when I grew up, I don't care, back, they're just, they just neglect it. Verse 25, he says, but you, he's positive, encourage one another, and you're here, I'm preaching the choir, all the more as you see the day drawing near. Watch this, this is the text, verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains, what? A sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. In other words, some people there in 26, deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, being exposed to the truth, enlightened to the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So the view is, though you may pray, there's no guarantee that one departing may ever be forgiven. Scary a little bit, isn't it? For you young people here, for you high schoolers, for you college age who have been enlightened with the truth and you get out and you go to campus and you get in your fraternity and you get in your sorority and you're gone. Wow. Think about it. 
it could be that he is addressing this sin. Now, however, okay, view four brings evidence of the New Testament, doesn't it? That some people, Corinthians, Ananias, and Sapphira, they just, God takes them home. Now, and he clarifies this. Look back in 1 John 5.17. He clarifies it. He says, all wrongdoing is sin. It's all sin, he says. Listen, you know, be careful you don't get so dicey on what's heinous, what's gross, what's okay, what's acceptable. John just says, all wrongdoing is sin, but he does say this. But there is a sin that does not lead to death. In other words, I think he's just encouraging us to not become lulled into sleep. That sin is inconsequential as long as you've not committed the sin that leads to death. John is not soft-peddling sin. Sin is rebellious, and sin would include any injustice, any unfairness, any unkindness. But frankly, for us to encourage us, some sin, verse 17, does not lead to death. Therefore, pray for one another. Now listen, follow me here. That's the emphasis of the text. The emphasis of the text isn't, the sin that leads to death, the emphasis of the text is for you to pray for each other, okay? The sin that leads to death is the exception. We are to pray for believers who are sinning a sin. Now, the greatest example, this is so encouraging, was Peter. Do you remember, we don't have to turn there, in the Garden of Gethsemane when our Lord needed him most? Peter denied him, not once, not twice, but what? three times with oaths and cursings. You say, well, Peter sinned unto death, right? Well, no. Peter did not die. And listen, you should be thankful that you do not die right now, right? I mean, if sin is serious, but Peter didn't die. He denied the Lord three times. In fact, far from taking him home, Jesus said to him in Luke 22, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan uh, demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have what? Prayed for you that your faith might not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I love that. I, I just think the whole impetus is that the Lord brought us together to be in the exposition that you maybe need to be praying for someone in our flock, in your family, in your extended family, in your community. You, so Jesus prayed, and you should pray for one another, especially in light of God's grace to you. Now you're sitting there, and you're asking the question, how does this apply to me? Hey, thanks for asking that question. I'm really glad. Let me give you, just quickly here, three guidelines, okay? Because I'm not going to just finish there. You knew I wouldn't do that. I just wouldn't do that. I mean, well, okay, we talked about the sin that leads to death, the other sin. No, that's not the point. That's not what preaching is all about. Preaching is a declaration to you. It's a declaration to me. So let me give you three guidelines for praying for a sinning believer, okay? I'm going to put it this way. You need to look up, you need to pray up, and you need to cover up, okay? So what do I do? Maybe the Spirit of God's placed somebody on your heart, somebody on your mind, and you could say, well, gosh, I don't think I should. No, you should. You say, I don't know if I can. No, you should go today. If you know, you should go. Matthew 18. And if you know, you should pray. So my first point is look up. You say, where do you get that? Well, right out of the text. Verse 16. If anyone sees, there's the word. 
Seize. Look up. Okay? You're responsible to restore your fallen brothers or sisters or family member or somebody in the body of Christ. You. And I'm just saying that to not like preach it. Yeah, I'm trying to encourage you. I don't know if I should say anything. Mike and Johnny, you guys are here. The worst case is in the dormitory at the master's college. Well, I guess my roommate is just, uh, this guy is out. I know he's involved in fornication. I just don't know what I should say. I'm like, shut up, dude. You should say something to him, right? You do have a responsibility. I don't, I don't know. I just don't want to be judgmental. No, you should go. So listen, you got to look up, open your eyes, and see you have a responsibility. What if our church operated like that? And we grabbed people and said, I love you, brother. I love you, sister. But you're going down a path and make sure it's not your own uh, emphasis. It's a sin. They're sinning a sin, but you have a responsibility. You, and I'm trying to encourage you, are not to be passive. You are to be active. You are not to retreat. You are to pursue a sinning brother, sister, roommates, daughter, son, granddaughter, grandson, Gosh, we have a responsibility. You say it's not my business to put my nose into other people's business. It is your business. And I tell you, as we walk forward, it is your business. And don't you just want to have a flock? Not because we're going to become the spiritual Gestapo, right? But it is your business. And that means to be do it in love, do it in humility. I get that. But it is your business. You are your brothers, your sisters, keeper. Have you heard the story of the boy who was trudging through the ghetto? He's trudging through the ghetto, and he's got a crippled child on his back. And when asked how he could carry such a heavy load, he responded, he ain't heavy. He's my brother. Listen, you carry people. You go to them. If you see them, then you go. So look up. Did not Jesus said, if any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, Does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go and search for the one who is straying? The answer is he does. And the word of God would just gently say, if anyone in our flock is caught in a trespass, Galatians 6.1, you who are spiritual, you who just are walking with the Lord, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Number one, look up. You got to see. Number two, you got to pray up. Got to look up. Then you got to pray up. You're to pray for them. So maybe I should just ask the question, okay? What is your first reaction when you hear of someone taking a nosedive in the faith? Do you point the finger of accusation, point the finger of condemnation, and in anticipation of excommunication, or are you burdened to pray for them? So you got to, Look up, you got to pray up, and thirdly, you got to cover up. Cover up. You say, Where is that? Well, ah, it's another text. Let me just show you. It's in James. Would you look back to James? Look back just a few books to the left. And I'm linking here the subject of prayer, and then we got to get to the Lord's table. Do you ever see that at the end of James? I'm so fired up to start James. Man, I don't know when it will be, like probably early June, because i got to go to New Zealand and do a conference. But as soon as I'm just getting ready for it, I just feel like I'm getting locked and loaded every week for James. But you ever see this one? You know it, 513. If anyone is among you suffering, watch this. Let him, what, 513, pray. 
Verse 14, if anyone among you is sick, let them call for the elders of the church and let them, what? Pray over them. Verse 15, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Sick. Look at verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Isn't this what he's talking about? The prayer? The prayer, verse 16, of a righteous man is great power and it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently. Verse 18, he prayed again. And here's the text in verse 19. My brothers, if any among you, it reminds me of this where we are in John. If any among you wanders, that's the word planao. They're like wandering like a lost star in the galaxy from the truth. And someone brings them back. Let, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from the wandering, from his wandering, will save his soul from death and will cover what? a multitude of sins. So listen, you need to look up. You need to pray up. You need to cover up. And as you go to them and as you pray, you may be saving their soul. Chuck Swindoll, in his book, Flying Closer to the Flame, listen to this account. He said, a person seriously ill was a believer who happened to be the wife of a medical doctor. And she suffered from almost unbearable pain all across her back. Several competent orthopedic specialists worked together on her case, all to no avail. Her incredible pain had led the physicians to begin intense medication that could become habit-forming, and her husband was very concerned. Finally, they hospitalized the woman. And because Swindoll says we were longtime friends while she's in the hospital, she contacted me, and I asked, I wonder if you could get together a group of, she asked, a group of elders from the church and if several of you could come and pray. I responded and said, certainly, we'll come. And we went, he said, six or seven of us. We walked into her hospital room on Sunday night following the evening service. She was in such pain she could hardly talk. I don't know what I'm going to do, she said. I'm getting desperate. What can we do? I replied, we can do what God instructed us to do and that's what? pray. We will pray that if it is, it is his sovereign will, he will save you and restore you and raise you up. Several of us drop to our knees and begin to pray. I finished my prayer by pleading with God to bring relief and if it were his will to bring full restoration. As another man began to pray, the woman reached down and touched me on the shoulder. I reached over to the man who was praying and took him by the knee and held it tightly as if to say, wait a minute. He stopped. And she said, excuse me for interrupting, but the pain is all gone. And she just began to weep. And Swindoll said, several of us wept as well. We were grateful to God at that moment. She said, I must tell you something. And she sat up in bed, something she had not been able to do for days. He said, actually, I think she could have gotten up, walked out of the hospital, stepped into the car, driven home that night. The pain was gone. She said, I need to tell you something about my life. Quietly, yet without hesitation, she began to unfold a story of sin that had been been part of her lifestyle. It is not necessary, Swindoll said, to go into the details, only to say that she had been living a life of deception before us and before her family as well. And he said, there was something about our prayer 
and the sincerity of our faith gathered around her that brought her to such a burning awareness of her sin that couldn't even let us finish. Let me ask you, who are you praying for this morning? You need to be praying for our people and the greater church at large.